Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Hey, we are in uh, week three of a series that we uh, started just a few weeks ago that we are calling The Answer, where we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians for the summer. And I know we got a lot of guests in the room in light of this baby blessing service. Uh, so whether you're new with us today or you've been out for the last couple of weeks, let me, let me frame this in a little bit so that we're all on the same page for today's subject matter. Uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians are letters that the Apostle Paul writes to a young church that he planted in the region of Corinth, uh, and they are a response to some issues that have arisen inside this church. Uh, after planting the church in 49 AD, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, realizes very quickly after he leaves this city that there's a lot of problems coming up as a result of the culture of Corinth. In those days, Corinth was the capital city of Greece, located in ancient Rome. It was a bit of a transient city, a port city, a lot of people coming in and going out. Uh, and as a result of the nature of this transient culture, there was a lot of stuff being imported and exported from Corinth. Uh, it was actually pretty widely recognized within the ancient Roman world as a bit of a hub for hedonism. There was a lot of wealth and a lot of influence, but also a lot of impurity inside the city of Corinth. In fact, if you do a little bit of cultural study, you'll realize very quickly that it was the place people traveled to so that they could explore their sexuality, so they could indulge in the flesh, so they could determine what area of life they wanted to really party in. It was, it was definitely a party city, kind of like the Chico of ancient days, you know. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not true. Uh, but uh, there was actually all of these pagan temples that were erected all around the city to pagan gods and goddesses. And uh, there, there at these pagan temples, people would engage in every form of perversion, uh, not limited to the public sex acts with prostitutes as a form of worship to these pagan gods. So as you can tell, it was definitely not a place that was known for its high moral standards or its Christian ethic. Uh, in fact, if I could distill it down, it was a place that you could be whoever you wanted to be, do whatever you wanted to do, indulge in whatever you wanted to indulge in, and not just be tolerated, but be celebrated as a result of it. And as we reminded ourselves of each week, that sure does sound a lot like a city that some of us live in and call home from day to day. Uh, but as it was for them, so it has been for us. The Apostle Paul believed that the light of the gospel shines best in the darkest of places. And so he begins to import this gospel of Jesus Christ and hundreds of people begin to get saved in this wicked city of Corinth. However, uh, after about a year and a half, he feels like the church is strong enough for him to leave. And after he leaves, a short time later, he gets some frantic letters from this church as they begin to uh, explain to him that problems have arisen within this brand new community of believers. They love Jesus, but they're discovering that it's a lot harder to live for him in a culture as wicked and pervasive as the one that they live in. In fact, some of the Corinthian ways were beginning to bleed into the culture of the Corinthian church. And so Paul writes these letters in response to their concerns. And one by one, he begins to tackle the issues that are being addressed. And with each issue, he displays for the Corinthian church how the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an answer to their problem. Hence the name of the series, The Answer. Uh, and since their city is a lot like our city, and their problems were not unique to Corinth, they are a lot like the problems we face today, then it stands to reason that their solution will be the same as our solution. 
If the gospel of Jesus Christ can show a wicked city 2,000 years ago how to stand for him in the midst of that culture, then the gospel still works 2,000 years later in a city like San Francisco to show the church of Jesus how we can stand in our day and age. And so every week we are looking at a different chapter. We're gonna go through all 16 of these. And as we look at these chapters, we contextualize the issue that they're facing to our modern day and we, we consider the answer to the question, how, how does a believer live in a culture like ours if we're facing this unique problem? In the first week, uh, we looked at the problem of the idolization of human knowledge above godly wisdom. Uh, in the second week, Pastor Robin, sorry, just Robin, I don't call her Pastor Robin at home, so uh, she preached a phenomenal message about how there was a problem of them walking in the flesh and not in the spirit, and how we are to walk in the spirit if we're going to experience the things of the spirit. Uh, today, we enter into the third chapter and the third problem that Paul addresses here in the text, a problem that one of my favorite theologians, a guy named David Guzik, titled his exposition on calling it carnal Christianity. In fact, if, if I could just borrow his name, I'd like to use that as our title today if we could because I, I can think of no better way to describe this section of the letter. I wanna call our chat this morning carnal Christianity. Uh, let, let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll jump back in. Uh, Holy Spirit, we welcome you now to speak to us. I thank you for the, the word. Uh, sometimes the word is encouraging, other times it's confronting. But how, however the word goes out and whatever it makes us feel, the scriptures tell us that your word never goes out without accomplishing what you intended for it to accomplish. It, it will produce fruit in our lives if we allow it to. And so right now as a, as a church family, we open up our hearts, we open up our minds, we wanna receive from you today. Confront us where we need to be confronted, confronted, change us where we need to be changed, and may we leave this place different than when we came. In the name of Jesus and the church said amen, amen. So this is a bit of an odd term, carnal Christianity. At face value, it's, it seems like a bit of an oxymoron, especially when you consider what we discussed in week one of this series, the initial call of the Apostle Paul in chapter one to live holy lives. We were told by him at the beginning that as believers, we've been called to live set apart from the world. We are not to think like the world around us or live like the world around us or believe what the world around us believes. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We live in San Francisco, but we do not adopt the ways of San Francisco. We have been called to build our lives upon the timeless truth of God's word. And so if we are called to live set apart from the carnal world around us, it seems a bit paradoxical to suggest that one could be carnal, but also Christian. And yet look at how the Apostle Paul opens up this, in, this, this section, chapter three of the letter, because he makes such an assertion. First Corinthians chapter three, verse one, he writes, dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you were carnal or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready for you are still carnal. So, so, so two times here in this opening section of chapter three, the Apostle Paul uses the word carnal to describe both the prior state and now the current state of the Corinthian believers. And he does make it clear that they are believers. He addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ, which is a term that is reserved for those who are saved. But he says, though you are saved, 
You are still living as carnal people live. I gotta speak to you the same way I talked to you when I first showed up. Then I had to address you as carnal, and even now, I still have to address you as carnal, though you have come to Christ. Paul seems to suggest here that it is entirely possible for someone to be a Christian, but still struggling with their carnality. To be saved, but still a little bit sketchy. To be holy, but still a little bit hood rat. Righteous, but a little bit ratchet. Come on, am I talking to anybody? Okay, yeah. This is what he's saying in this text. He says, you are Christians, but you are also still a bit carnal. And this word carnal in the Greek, it is the word sarkikos. And it means to be governed by human nature and not by the spirit of God. To be under the control of animal appetites or to be people of the flesh. I felt a little insulted when I read the second one. That under the control of animal appetites. It's like... In other words, to, to, to be carnal just means you have no self-control. You, you don't have the ability to do the things that you ought to do, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. You are still governed by, enslaved to, mandated to the flesh. Whatever the flesh desires to do seems to be what you end up doing. And to analogize this reality, the Apostle Paul uses a very interesting word picture. He says, you guys are like adults that should be eating steak but instead you're sucking on a bottle. You're drinking milk when you should be eating solid food, yet you are adults, which is a bit of a, a disturbing image when you think about it. Like, like imagine uh, there was a, a full-grown man here this morning. Well, there's, never mind, there is full-grown men here this morning, but imagine there's a, a guy sitting with his wife today, and you know, as I'm preaching, he just starts to get a little bit antsy, and he's like... I don't like the guy saying up there, and I'm hungry, and I didn't sleep well last night, and he just starts getting antsy in the, in, in the auditorium, and you know, the wife's trying to console him, and, and she can't, and so finally she just says, fine, she takes a bottle out of her purse, she shakes it up, throws it in his mouth, and he just, and he just sits there sucking on a bottle for the rest of the sermon. How many know that would be a little bit awkward if you were sitting next to that dude? It becomes a little bit more awkward when you realize they did not have bottles in the biblical times and there was only one way to get your mama's milk. <laughs> awkward, yeah. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, guys, you're adults. You're full-grown people. You should be sitting down at the table with a steak knife in hand, but in the spirit, you are still sucking on your mother's milk. You're still drinking bottles. You are still immature. And remember, he is not talking to people here that are brand new to faith. He's not talking to people that, that have just gotten saved. They're in first 40. They're learning all about the Bible. They're, they're working out their faith in, in fear and trembling. They're in the sanctification. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people that have been saved for some time, but are still sitting in church, clocking in, clocking out, and not doing anything for God. They're still immature in their faith. They are Christian, but they're still a bit carnal. I love the way one theologian, uh, Redpath, puts it. He says it like this. He says, the carnal Christian is a child of God, born again and on his way to heaven, but he is traveling third class. Whoo, that one stings a little bit. He's traveling third class. But, but after making this accusation, 
the Apostle Paul begins to prove what he's saying by offering a couple of examples in the lives of these believers where they are living like third-class carnal Christians instead of the mature believers they are supposed to be. And what I'd like to do in our remaining moments together is I wanna focus in on these two areas that the Apostle Paul begins to highlight in their lives because ultimately this series is not about us asking what was their problem, it's about asking do we have a similar problem in our own lives? Are we living a carnal Christian life or have we matured as we're supposed to mature as believers? So the, the first of these issues that the Apostle Paul begins to dive into is this. It is what I would like to call divisive allegiance. Divisive allegiance. Uh, look at what he goes on to say in verse four. When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul and the other says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like the people of this world? After all, who's Apollos? Who's Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts, Apollos watered it, but it was God who made that seed grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that you serve a God that has the ability to make the seeds of faith grow on the inside of you. That's what's most important. So let's unpack this a bit. Paul is, is now referencing something that he has referenced a number of times up until this point in the letter, but he's finally calling it out for what it truly is. Apparently, after Paul planted this church and decided to move on into Syria to plant further churches, he installed a new leader, a new pastor of the community, a guy by the name of Apollos. And, and Apollos is now the preacher. He's now the leader of the church. And as he steps into his position of authority, the people of the church begin to talk, as church people do. And some of them are like, Man, I miss that Paul guy. He was so much better than this joker. This guy doesn't know what he's doing up there, up there talking and talking and talking. Well, I bring Paul back. But then the other people are like, I like this new guy. He's way better than that old fart who used to leave this church, all right? I like the new fresh blood. And, and apparently this division becomes so severe that it ends up creating factions within the Corinthian church where some of them pledge their allegiance to Apollos and others pledge their allegiance to Paul. And so Paul addresses this issue in his letter and he says, guys, are you serious? Hey, let me remind you, neither I nor Apollos, we did not save you. We did not die on a cross for you. We did not come to earth and live a life that you could not live so that you could be saved. No, that, that's, you're not building your life on a leader. You're not building your life on a belief system. You are building your life upon the person that is Jesus Christ and him alone. Yeah, we played our role. Like we, we planted seeds. We watered the seed of faith in your heart, but we didn't make that seed grow. God's the one who saved you. God's the one who matures you. So to pledge your allegiance to a leader is a fatal flaw in your faith. You should be pledging your allegiance to Jesus and to him alone. Now that was their problem. But again, we're not here to discuss their problems. We're here to look in the mirror and go, do we have a similar problem? Does this carnal Christian mindset of divisive allegiance live in any of us? On a macro scale, globally, I think the obvious answer to that is yes. Yes. This issue of divisive allegiance is still alive and well in the church. Here we are some 2,000 years later, and I would suggest that the church is more divided now than it has ever been in history. There are plenty of people that are pledging their allegiance to a leader or to a belief system well above the name of Jesus. Only we don't call it what they called it in scripture. We don't call it 
Apollos or Paul, we call it ministries. We call it denominations. This is ultimately what Paul was speaking of. This is just an ancient form of denominationalism. It's a group of people that said, well, I don't believe what that guy said. I don't like the way that that leader led. So we're gonna break off into our own little subsect of faith and we're gonna create a group of like-minded individuals. We're gonna stamp it with our own name and we're gonna gather together under that name while we discredit all of the other people who were believing something that we don't believe in. And suddenly the church is no longer just a bunch of people gathered under the name of Jesus, but now we identify with some other names. Oh, I'm Catholic, I'm Lutheran. I'm Episcopalian, I'm Anglican, I'm charismatic, I'm Pentecostal. Or if you're really progressive, like the Father's house, well then I'm a non-denominational. This is really just a way of saying, I don't wanna be associated with all the rest of those guys out there, so we're gonna create our own little subsect over here of non-denominational people with no governance. I'm just saying. <laughs> this is how the church is set up these days. Divided. Pledging allegiance to names above Jesus. And listen, I'm not here to, to, to bash denominations or, or to suggest that being non-denominational is the way to go. That's not, that's not my goal today. But I am here to suggest that there is a reason that the church has been broken up into, and I, I, this is not an exaggeration, this is a real number, over 45,000 different denominations globally within the Christian church. 45,000 different groups that believe they've got it right and everybody else has got it wrong. Somewhere along the line, we became okay with making mountains out of very small theological differences while we siphoned off into our little group of like-minded people and we dishonored and we discredited everybody who didn't believe what we believed. That's the problem that Paul is addressing here. Now, some of you are nodding your heads at me and you're looking at me because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You came from churches like that. You came from the church where the pastors on stage spent more time talking about the Christians that they disagreed with than the name of Jesus that we are all supposed to be united under. The very one who prayed before he went to the cross. Lord, I pray that they would be one just as you and I are one so that they would display with their unity to the watching world that I love them. But it's hard to say you're unified when you're broken up into 45,000 different pieces. But that said, let me, let me let a little bit of air back in the room. If we're grading on a curve, I believe that we, and by we I mean the Church of Jesus in San Francisco, I think we're doing pretty good in this area. I don't believe that we are struggling as badly as maybe other parts of the nation, other parts of the world where the denominational wars are waging. I think that we're actually doing okay. I, I like to tell people that one of the beautiful things about plastering a church in San Francisco is that the pastors and the churches are very united. And the reason that we're so united is because we don't have time to argue about our petty theological differences because we're far too focused on the fact that 99% of our city is lost and on their way to hell without Jesus. So we're focused on the mission at hand. We got our eyes focused on a common enemy, not on each other and our differences, going, we're gonna do whatever we gotta do to get people to come to Jesus. Like, I love that about our city. I think the closest we get to this device of allegiance here at the Father's house is every week after Robin preaches and many of you come up to me and you begin to tell me how much more you like Robin than you do me, kind of an Apollos and Paul situation we have on our hands, but I would just appreciate it if you didn't say that as often, that would really help my, my self-esteem. That's fine, it's whatever, I like her more than myself too. But on a macro level in San Francisco, I don't think we have this problem. 
However, that said, there are some nuanced ways in which this divisive allegiance can work its way into our lives. And I would be remiss if I did not at least spend a couple of moments on one of those nuanced ways that, that might leak into our lives, yes, even here in San Francisco. And that would be the area of our speech about other churches and other leaders in the body of Christ. I know that in our community, many of you have come to faith here. You had no faith background, no church background, AKA no baggage you drug in the door with you, and I love you. I'm grateful that you found Jesus here and that you didn't bring a bunch of bad stuff with you in the process. But I also know that the rest of us came from some church backgrounds where maybe there was a whole lot of dysfunction, some spiritual abuse. They had all the problems that caused you to leave and find a new space to heal up. And just fair warning, I'm sure we have our fair share of dysfunction and problems as well. We keep them behind these curtains over here so that you can't see them, but they're here, rest assured. But, but I also know that we live in a culture these days that has become obsessed with, developed an insatiable appetite for, dare I say is addicted to what a friend of mine recently called Christian failure porn documentaries and exposés that are being released by the dozens about failed church leaders and massive movements in the body of Christ that have truly shaped the world over the last 30 or 40 years. And, and as these come out, it's like we can't stream them fast enough onto our platforms as we take in the failures of other people, almost validating. I knew all churches were like that. And, and we need to be careful because when we see things like this, it can be tempting to join in the conversation, to join in the condemnation and pick up the stone and get ready to chuck it at all of these people who have fallen, to discredit and dishonor and assume that we know everything because we watched the documentary and so we have all of the information about the, the situation at hand. It can be tempting to celebrate about their public demise or Join in the cryptic prayers with those who are like, we just pray for the toxicity of that place, that it would stop. So we cloak it under spiritualism, but really it's just being critical and demeaning. And we gotta be careful about that. We gotta be careful about the way we speak of other leaders and the way we speak about other churches and other movements in the body of Christ. Because what we don't realize is when we're speaking about them negatively, we're not talking about an individual, we're not talking about a group of people, we're not talking about a movement. What we're really talking about is what the Bible calls the bride of Jesus Christ. They may have a different denomination and a different logo plastered on the door, but according to scripture, if they've placed their faith in Jesus, they are part of the bride of Christ. And listen, I don't know about all the other husbands in the room, but if you start talking trash about my bride, come on, somebody. You start running your mouth behind the scenes about an aspect of her personality that you don't like or part of her expression that you disagree with, and you start creating a little group of people that, that talk badly about my bride, you better believe I have a problem with that. You better believe we're gonna have some conversations. I will lay hands on you, and I do not mean in the way that scripture speaks of laying hands on people, all right? I might not look like much, but I can throw down. I can get scrappy, okay? There's a reason I'm tatted. I will spend some time, I'm just kidding. Why, because I love her. She's the most important person on the planet to me. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> she is. 
And if I, a broken and fractured human, love my wife that much, if I care that deeply about my bride, you better believe that the King above all kings and the Lord above all lords cares very deeply for those whom he calls his bride. The Bible says that he loves her, he gave up his life for her, he is returning for her one day on a white horse, not different puzzle pieces and factions of her, but all 45,000 different flavors of his bride, he is returning to recover him, them to himself. So listen, if this is your church, I'll put my foot down on this matter. As for us in this house, we're gonna speak life over every other church, over every other pastor, over every other ministry, every other movement that is doing everything it knows how to do to propagate the gospel here on planet Earth. I speak life over Reality Church, over Cornerstone Church, over Epic Church, over Experience Church, over Sunset Church and Sunset AG, over New North, over Hillsong Church over there on Treasure Island, over every community that is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and doing everything it knows how to do to see people People who are lost and dying and on their way to hell without Jesus come to saving faith. I ain't got time for all that divisive garbage. What a waste of breath. I bless them in the name of Jesus. I don't care if their worship is different than ours or the theology is subtly different than ours. Man, Jesus stands above it all. And as long as he is the centerpiece of our faith, we can unite around the things that we share in common. In Jesus' name. I got more to say about that, but I only got 14 minutes left, so we got to move on. Because there is a second aspect of carnal Christianity that Paul begins to address rather aggressively in the second half of this portion of his letter. One that I would argue has a far more, far more consequential uh, outcome if we don't address it appropriately. And that, which he begins to speak of after establishing this foundation that we've all built our lives upon called Jesus Christ, is what he begins to call eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. I know, just a little lighthearted subject here on Father's Day. <laughs> Some churches are like, we're gonna talk about the prodigal son, the Abba Father, Daddy God. Some dad's root beer, some beef jerky for all the dads on the way out the door. I'm like, let's do eternal judgment on Father's Day. That's, that's how we're gonna do it here at the Father's house. Eternal judgment. Look at what he says as he moves on through the rest of this section of the letter, verse 11. He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. But on judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. They'll be saved but like somebody barely escaping through a wall of flames. Everybody take a deep breath. This section of the letter is gonna get a little bit heavy for the next couple moments. Because what Paul begins to remind both me as a teacher of the word and us as a community of believers of in this particular section is truth that we need to keep on the forefront of our minds, not just one Sunday or a couple Sundays a year when we talk about it, but every single day of our lives. He first starts with the preacher and he reminds me that part of my job is to preach what he calls foundational truth. To not step into the temptation that's available in these days to preach a half-baked, watered-down, lame version of the gospel that is void of any confrontation 
void of any conviction that just appeals to the, the ears and the intellect of people, but to preach the truth of what God's word says, specifically the truth about eternity. I consider it to be one of my prime responsibilities to prepare this community that God has entrusted to us for eternity, to prepare all of us for the fact that we will all spend eternity somewhere, to live our lives, as Paul tells the, the Colossians, focusing on things above and not on things below, to be more obsessed about what's coming next in the afterlife than what we see in this life. If I have failed to prepare us for eternity, then I, have, I believe I have failed as a pastor. And today, this scripture forces me to once again own that responsibility and to speak about the realities of eternity. In verse 13, Paul tells us about something he calls judgment day. This is a literal day that scripture speaks of where all of us will stand before Jesus and we will give an account for our lives here on earth. And according to scripture, we will be judged for eternity based on the way we conducted ourselves here on planet Earth. And Paul begins to tell us that on this day, the, the materials we built our lives with will be revealed. Some will have built with eternal materials like gold and silver and jewels. Others will have built their life with materials that will burn, wood, hay, and straw. But all of us are gonna see what we've built with on that day. Now, in just a moment, I'll explain what Paul means by this analogy before we conclude. But before we get to that analogy, we first need to establish a truth that is woven in, baked into this portion of Scripture that his audience would have understood, but we may not understand here today because we don't have the full context of this letter. So, so, so let's reel it back for just a moment and, and understand what he's speaking about when he speaks about Judgment Day. What Paul is reminding the Corinthians of here is that for the believer, all of us will face what Scripture calls a two-part judgment. A two-part judgment. For illustrative purposes, uh, I have a couple of thrones that we're gonna use. Yeah, if I can get my guys to come help me real quick and bring those thrones over. One of the beauties of doing church in a Masonic center is that there is an endless supply of props here. There are literally about 40 thrones behind the stage here. I'm saying a lot about what's back here. Maybe one day we'll just turn the curtains around so you can see it all. Uh, but there's some big ones. Thank you guys. You have one on either side. It'd be great. So there are, there are two thrones here that we're gonna focus in on as we speak about judgment. The first judgment is one that takes place at a throne that many of us might be familiar with. Maybe you've read about it before in Scripture. It's known as the Great White Throne Judgment. Uh, the Apostle John speaks about it in the book of Revelation where he says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so Paul, or excuse me, John tells us here that all of humanity will one day stand before the great white throne. And as we stand before this throne, we're gonna see two things. We will see what scripture calls the book of life. This is not it, just to be clear. But in the book, 
is written the names of all of the people who will spend an eternity with Christ. That's what the book of life contains. But in addition to the book, we will also see some books. Books that contain the details of every single one of our lives. Think about this for a moment. Right now in heaven, there is a book with your name on it. Psalm 139, David says, before I ever breathed my first breath, all of my days were accounted for in your book. There is a book of Dave and a book of Cheryl and a book of Michelle in the Bible, or in heaven. And inside that book, all the details, every, every trial you faced, every failure, every victory, every tear you've shed, every moment you said, I don't think I could go on, but through Christ you continue to fight the good fight of faith. Every one of those tears contained inside a book with your name on it in heaven. How good is your God that he knows the hairs on your head, the minutes and seconds of your life, all contained in a book. And I don't, I don't know exactly how it'll go down, but I imagine it's something like the waiting area in In-N-Out. <laughs> Eventually, it'll come to my name. And uh, could Timothy Irving Biddle please step up to the throne? Your judgment is ready. Don't make fun of my name. And I'll walk up to this throne, the great white throne, and for the first time, I will lock eyes with my Savior. For the first time, I'll begin to gaze into the loving eyes of this Jesus that I have given my life to serve. No longer an image of a man from the chosen. <laughs> but I will see him for who he truly is. And he will look at me with love in his eyes and I will look at him with affection in mine. And then the book will be opened. And at that moment it will be determined if I have done what was necessary to have my name found in the book. If I have done, as it says in Romans chapter 10, to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. If I had truly surrendered my heart and the totality of my life to him. In this moment, it will not be about the good things I did or the bad things that I did. There is no scale at the great white throne that weighs our good and our bad to determine if we qualify. There is only one question that matters at this moment. What did you do with Jesus? And if I've answered that question correctly, if I've made him Lord of my life, then scripture says in Matthew 7 that he will look at me and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. Your name is in the book. But just as I celebrate that reality, there's an alternative one as well. Because John tells us that not everybody's name is gonna be in that book. And scripture tells it clearly that for those whose name is not found in this book of life, Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. And that they will be tossed into what the scriptures call the lake of fire, 
a place of eternal punishment apart from Christ. Why? Because they rejected the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life to get to heaven. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, this would be an appropriate moment in the sermon to stop for a second and say, this is real whether we like it or not. This is gonna happen whether you believe it or not. And if that reality terrifies you, if there is not a confident hope in your heart today that your name is written in that book, then let me offer some good news. You do not have to leave this room today with wonder in your heart about whether standing before Jesus will result in a well done, good and faithful servant. You don't have to clean your life up. You don't have to live perfectly. You don't have to try to get all your ducks in a row before you can come to Jesus. You can leave this place with confident hope that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me say this. Hell was not created for people. Hell was created for Satan and his demons because of their rejection of Christ. It was not created for people. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but they will have everlasting life. The Father sent his son to earth to die a gruesome death on a cross, to live the life that none of us could live and die the death that all of us deserve so that the price of our sin could be paid for once and for all and we could be found in an eternity with him. Some people ask, how, how could a loving God create a place like hell for people? Answer, he did not. He didn't create hell for people. Hell is optional. It is where you can choose to pay for your sin if you want to, or you can choose on this side of eternity to surrender your heart to Jesus, to believe that he died once and for all for your pardoning, and you can ensure that your name is written in that book and there's an eternity secured for you. And if you're here this morning and that thought terrifies you because you don't know, rest assured before we conclude today as we do every single week, there will be an option for you to pray a prayer along with me, not to fix yourself up, but to accept the free gift of salvation that has been made available to you through Jesus. But it doesn't end there. This is only the first throne. This is only the first judgment. For the believer, there still remains a second judgment. One that is not based on what you did with Jesus, but one that is based on what you did with your life. One that takes into account all those things that are written inside the book of your life. And it is this judgment that Paul speaks of here in 1 Corinthians chapter three as he begins to mention gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. It's the judgment of the believer where we stand before Jesus. And because of what we did on this earth, it's less about where we spend eternity but more about how we spend eternity. And Paul speaks about this a bit more extensively in a later letter to this same group of Corinthians, and this will be our last scripture for the day. I'll invite the worship team to come as we prepare to close, but look at what he says. For we believers in Jesus will be called to an account, and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be repaid for what has been done in the body, whether good or bad. That is, each will be held responsible for his actions, his purposes, his goals, motives, the use or misuse of his time, opportunities, and abilities.
This second judgment is what the scriptures call the judgment seat of Christ. And it is reserved for the believers based on what's written in this book. And suddenly now we have some clarity around what Paul is saying when he begins to speak about gold and silver and jewels. Suddenly we begin to realize that he's not just talking about literal materials, but he's speaking of a life that has lived with this chair in mind. A life that has been lived focused on eternity. One that is not consumed with wood, hay, and straw and the things that will burn away one day. One that refuses to be obsessed with how do I get the bigger house? How do I get the newer car? How do I get the next promotion and the next title and lateral from this place to that place and the next relationship status? And how do I store up more retirement for myself so that I can sit back and, and be really comfortable in this life? No, a life that understands I'm gonna stand before this throne and I'm gonna answer for every dollar and every moment and every opportunity that I either took advantage of or I ignored. And I don't wanna stand at this throne with any regrets. So I'm gonna give because I understand that giving makes an impact on eternity. I'm gonna serve because my serving makes an impact on eternity. I'm gonna love because Jesus told me to love and it makes an impact for eternity. And I will even endure hardship well because the scriptures say that those who endure hardship with perseverance will receive the crown of life that God has promised to them. It's a life that's aware of this, this throne we're gonna stand before. And listen, I can't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. But I don't wanna be like the builder that barely escapes through flames as I stand before Jesus and watch everything that I built my life upon burn away. Because all I cared about were the temporary pleasures of this life. And I did not live with eternity in mind. Scripture tells us that there will be a moment where Jesus wipes away every tear in heaven. The lie that there are no tears in heaven is just that as a lie. And I believe that those tears are found at this throne while people get to see a picture of what could have been if they had been more surrendered to Jesus. And I don't wanna stand at that throne with tears in my eyes and regret in my heart as I see the opportunities I missed, the sacrifices I was unwilling to make, the suffering I was unwilling to endure because I needed to heal up a little bit more or take a little bit more time to myself and, and self-care and all the garbage that we invest our lives in these days. I wanna know that when I stand before this throne, I have given my life to eternal things. I want him to say, well done with your family. Well done with your friends. Well done with the city I called you to give your life to. Well done with the church that I enabled you to help build in San Francisco. You did what I asked you to do. You did not live for the moment, you live for eternity. And because of that, you can enter in to an eternal reward because you live with this throne in mind. That's what I want. That's what I'm giving my life to. And I would imagine that is what more than just I want in the room. Many of us want the same. And so as we land the plane, I I ask the question that is buried in this text, maybe not stated overtly, but I ask what the Apostle Paul would probably ask of us today. Are you building for eternity? How are you investing your life right now? I feel like this is a word of knowledge for somebody in the room this morning, but 
as I was ranting just a second ago, I made mention of taking a break. I feel like there's somebody here, and maybe multiple people here, you've just been saying, well, I'm waiting to get healthy before I do something for Jesus again. And you know that the call of God still remains strong in your life. And you've taken an off-ramp for way too long, my friend. You will give an account for the season of wasted time where you just sat in a chair in church and did nothing for Jesus. Do not let another day go by. I'm sorry if that's harsh, but you're gonna stand before this throne. What are you building right now with your life? What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with the gifts and talents that God has entrusted to you? What are you doing with the treasure and the resources he's given to you? Are they all invested in stuff that's gonna burn or are they invested in gold, silver, jewels, and things that will outlast you? And if the surveying of your landscape reveals that you've been building with faulty materials, then today is your opportunity to bring it back to the foundation of Jesus and to begin building with stuff that matters again, to build for eternity. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. I pray that your heart your heart would go out from the stage. This would not be words from a man, but it would be the words of God that resonate and agitate, convict and confront, that draw and heal. Father, we repent. We repent for getting so consumed with the things we want in this life, for not suffering well, for not enduring hardship well, for looking for the easy way out. How can I sacrifice the least and still get the most reward? How we repent for these things. May we keep our eyes fixed on things above and not the things below. May we live with eternity in mind. One more group of people I wanna pray for before we conclude, and that would be those I said a moment ago are terrified at the idea of standing before this white throne I can say this honestly there is confidence in my heart that if I were to pass into eternity today I know I would be with Jesus and that is a confidence that he wants for every person in this room and if you are here this morning and you would say Tim I don't know for sure that I'm in right relationship with God I don't know that my name would be in that book then I'm going to invite you right now to do what Paul speaks of to build your life on the foundation that is Jesus Christ and that foundation is established not by good behavior it's established not by you trying to fix yourself. It's established by a simple confession of faith. I believe Jesus is who he said he is. I'm putting my faith in the finished work of the cross. I believe he resurrected to give me new life and I am his. It's that simple today. And if you need to pray that prayer of commitment with me today so that your name can be in the book, I want you to be bold right now and just lift up a hand and say, include me in this prayer, Tim. I wanna pray with you today. If that's you, come on, lift your hand. Thank you, bro, I got you. Yeah, I got you right here. Got you right over there, awesome. Yeah, I got you, bro. Awesome. <laughs> Anyone else? Hallelujah. Okay, if I didn't see you, I'm sorry. All right, church, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray out loud with all these making this decision today so they don't feel alone. Everyone say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to be your disciple to walk in your ways 
from this day forward until I see you at that throne. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's celebrate with all of heaven, every single one of those making that decision today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.